Father, we ask that you would give us what we don't have. You'd show us what we need to see. You'd, um, by the work of the Spirit, that you would come and you'd lift up Christ. Because we know without a doubt that what everyone needs in this room most, Christian, non-Christian, seeker, doubter, questioning the faith, rejoicing, struggling, what we need most is to leave this time more impressed with Jesus, more, more confident in what he's done, more full of hope with what he guarantees he will do. So Holy Spirit, would you lift Christ up that our hearts might be drawn after him? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me give you the three movements of this sermon before we read the text. Verse one, why pray? Verses two through the first part of verse eight, why pray? The last part of verse eight, see if you can help me out with this one. Why pray? You got it right. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? This is God's holy, wonderful, hope-producing word. And he, speaking of Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Feel free to grab a seat. This is only, as far as I can tell, one of two times where Jesus says, here's the point of the story before he tells the story. Here's the point of the parable before he tells the parable. The, the next time actually happens um, in verse 9. We'll look at that, Lord willing, next week. The purpose is clear. Jesus' people ought always to pray and to not lose heart. Let's unpack those quickly. To, to pray means to, to talk with God, to listen to God, to sit with God, to, to ruminate with God. It can be silent. It can be loud. In this text, it says to cry out. It can be emotional. It can be reasoned. It can be eloquent. It can be stumbling. It can be brief. It can be moaning. It can be everything. It can be sung. It's the book of Psalms are the, the, the hymnal of the Old Testament. It can be full of scripture to pray God's word back to him or in light of who he is. Maybe I could define prayer like this. It is personal communication and communion with God. It means to bring yourself intentionally and mindfully into his presence, whatever that looks like. And then this other phrase, so we're to, to do that and to not lose heart. To, to lose heart, it could mean to lose courage, to become discouraged. It, it can actually be translated to faint, to be overwhelmed by the circumstances in which you face that you just tap out. You know, some, some of us do that, we get really overwhelmed, and so we just go, I just got to take a nap. We ought to pray so that we do not lose heart. 
Now, a shift happened for me when I was studying this, this text. The basic principle of it, to pray and not lose heart, it's been clear for a long time. It's very clear from verse 1, but not the why. If you look at the context of Jesus' instruction in this parable, you begin to see the why does he say, in light of this, that's why you need to pray and to not lose heart. And in the, the context is back in chapter 17. If you go back to chapter 17, the last half of it, starting about in verse 21, what Jesus is talking about is he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then he goes on and says, the son of man is going to go away. You're going to long for the days when Jesus was here. He's talking to to, to people that saw him 2,000 years ago. He says, I'm going to go away. And then you're going to hear threats of war and rumors of war. And And what's happening here is between these verses... Jesus is saying the kingdom of God has shown up. Uh, uh, The reigning of righteousness and justice and wholeness is here, and yet it's not fully here. One day it's going to be, because Jesus is going to come back and he's going to set up his kingdom, the thing that all of our hearts most long for at the end of the day. It started but it's not yet brought to completion. The fancy phrase for this in the theological world is we are in a time of what's called inaugurated eschatology. That Christ has begun his kingdom. The last things have begun, but it's been inaugurated, and when Christ comes back, it will be consummated. We live right now in this time called the already, but the not yet. Already, God is showing up, and his kingdom is showing up, and there's beauty, and and there's good, and there's rescue, but there's also assaults, and traumas, and frustrations at a global level, and in our own homes, and dorms, and sports teams, and workplaces. That is life in 2023. A real mixed world. You have a judge here who uh, does not fear God or care about other people. You have a widow who has been wronged in some way, pleading for justice. And the focus of this parable is how do you navigate a mixed bag world that's beautiful and broken without losing heart? I would suggest to you verse one is not two separate things. It's, it's causal, it's connected. We ought always to pray so that we don't lose heart. That's the the punchline that Jesus is putting over the banner of of this parable. And how how does that work? Well, when you pray, you're personally and consciously putting yourself in the presence of God. And when we do that, that can begin to change everything. I asked uh, Katie and Emma, if you're in my home and I'm sermon prepping, you're typically going to get to ask questions, so I have stories and illustrations. So I asked them, I said, hey, Emma and Katie, like, like, help me understand how to illustrate this idea that when we, we pray and we go before God, it, kind of, it helps us to not get discouraged. And, and Katie said this. She says, the first thing I think of is like when our kids were younger and in the middle of the night they would have a bad dream or they'd get scared and they would come into our room and they would tug on the edge of the bed and you'd kind of wake up and you would just, without even really saying anything, you kind of just put your arm down and you'd pull them in and you'd, we'd put them between us and you could just hear them just exhale and rest. Or when they would get injured, and you would grab them, and you'd pick them up, and you'd hold them near, and the, the, the chatter and the crying would kind of just subside. And Emma, her, her response was, was very helpful. She says, she goes, I'm not the one to ask. 
I typically don't share until the very last minute after I've already worried, fretted, and stressed about it. Anyone else feel seen? I love both those answers because together they perfectly illustrate the, purple, the purpose and, and emphasis of this parable. Someone said, I don't know who said it, but, but worry is praying to yourself. And if that's true, then prayer is bringing our worries to God. So why pray? So you know that God knows. He already does. He's not surprised when you say, I'm struggling with this, this is what's going on, this is what's distressing me, this is what's challenging me. And that's only one type of prayer, but in this text, it's a, it's a prayer of petition. He's not surprised, but oftentimes we're disconnected from it. And so we pray so we know the God who holds our heart and our hurts. As we go in, so verse one, why pray? So we don't lose heart. We go into verse two and following, why pray? So we don't lose heart in, in a in a mixed bag world. The, the, the widow, what she's doing is she is longing for justice in a world that is not just. R.C. Sproul makes um, what I think was a really, really helpful insight. Uh, what happens in this parable is the world we find ourselves into. No doubt there are people in positions of authority that fear God and care for their neighbors. Perfectly no, but they genuinely do but there are also those like this judge who neither fears God nor cares about his fellow man or woman. And then he uses the example from 1857, the Supreme Court reached a verdict, the highest place of supposed justice in our land. The verdict in the Dred Scott case that said slaves are not persons under the Constitution and therefore can be treated as personal property. That's barbaric. That is wicked. That is vile. Now, it prompted me, Sproul's insight prompted me to do a little more research, and I came across a blog post that said, the 13 worst Supreme Court decisions of all time. And there are some doozies. Uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896. This is where we get the very damaging phrase, separate but equal. This was put in at a time that basically undermined any of the gains made in the post-Civil War, what was known as the Reconstruction Era, and replaced them with Jim Crow laws. Or Buck versus Bell, 1927, quoting Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, and I've modified his statement, I've trimmed some things out because I just don't even want to read it here, but said this, for the protection and health of the state, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. State-sanctioned sterilization. You may have heard the phrase of eugenics. Now, Holmes is rightly, when we look back and we historically judge him, is rightly vilified, but he was simply the one writing the statement. The court passed this eight to one. There was only one Supreme Court justice who said this is not right. And if you look at the list of people during this time that supported eugenics, it's staggering and heartbreaking. I could go on to list the other cases, but let me list one case that was left off the blog post. And why I'm doing it is it for multiple reasons, but one of them is to illustrate how disjointed our culture's perspective of justice is. We pick and choose what we believe to be just. It was a case in 1973, ruled seven to two, 
that state restrictions of abortion are unconstitutional. Very loud in our news recently, Roe v. Wade. And I recognize in this room, some would say that was an act of justice and recently overturned, and some would say that's an act of justice. We live in a world where those in positions of authority, including ourselves as parents, as teachers, as leaders, as bosses, as friends that people look up to, that sometimes steward it well and sometimes don't, and it fractures the world. This parable is about persistent prayer so we don't look at a world of justice and injustice and do two things, give up or join it. So we have this unjust judge. We have this, the helplessness of a widow. Um, the unjust judge, and then you have this widow, and being a widow at this time was a crisis. You were very vulnerable. You were basically utterly dependent upon either what was left to you or the people around you that could provide for you. There's no easy way to actually go and support oneself. And this widow has been taken advantage of, and she... The only thing she can do is to come to this judge and petition him. She's helpless. When uh, Katie and myself and then two of our kids were flying to China to, to go and adopt our daughter Lily, we were flying out of Vancouver. There's a huge storm, and so we didn't get to leave Vancouver. Our pl plane was delayed maybe three hours or so, which meant by the time we landed in Beijing on our way to Guangzhou, um, our plane had already left. And so now we're in Beijing, in the Beijing airport, which is massive. This thing is enormous. We're in this airport. It's before Google Translate, and we didn't learn any language before we went, so we have no way of communicating. We're in the middle of this gigantic airport that's just this cavernous empty shell because all the planes have left, and we don't know what we're supposed to do. And at the time, I think Owen might have been two, Emma was probably five. And we're going, okay, what do we do? We don't know how to get down to Guangzhou, which is you know, hours away on, on, a, on an airplane. What do we do? Well, at some point in this experience, we were like, holding our tickets. We're like going to people who look like they might know that, how to help. And we're, we're holding our tickets. And, and there's obviously a, a pretty significant language barrier. And then somehow we found ourselves in a white shuttle. So somehow we, we got out of the airport and we were told to get in a shuttle. So we get in a shuttle. And we're sitting in a shuttle. And it drives away from the airport. And then all of a sudden, we're in the middle of nowhere. We're on some, some what felt like side roads. Everything's dark. And I remember looking over at Katie and say, this might be it. We might die, and, which is probably not the most faith-inducing statement for a husband to make at that point. We definitely didn't tell our kids what I said. So anyway, so we, we didn't die. Da -da. Yeah, you know, I'm here. So we didn't die. We ended up at a hotel. So I guess that, and when we got to the hotel, there was someone who spoke uh, English, and so we were able to interact, and they said, you're, you're, you've been rebooked on a flight tomorrow at this time. You're in this room. Here's some food over here. Um, just show up tomorrow morning out front, and there will be a shuttle to take you back. And so we said, okay. So we show up, and we have all our bags. We have our kids, and we're standing there, and there is a mob of people, just people everywhere. And there's shuttle after shuttle coming through. And so we're standing, like, first in line, just ready to go. Shuttle comes up, and everyone races around us, jumps on, fills it, goes. And we're like, okay. Next shuttle comes. Okay, kids, let's, we're gonna, we're, we can do it. Everyone just goes around us. And this happened like four or five times. And I'm sitting there going like, we're going to miss our plane again. And then what was incredible, there was a woman from Ferndale who happened to be there. And she comes up and says, this is, you, you got to just push yourself on. And so the next shuttle comes up and she takes us and just throws our bags in. <laughs> that felt helpless. I was helpless. I was helpless. This widow was helpless. The situations we find ourselves in sometimes just feel really 
helpless. Sometimes the injustices are so big, they're beyond what we can do. And so we pray. This parable is known by a few different titles. What you, and what you call it has a tendency to color how you apply it. it. In some Bibles, there's always these little like headers over sections. To, they're not the word of God. They're, they're uh, summary statements to try to help us understand what's usually coming after. And so some call this the, the parable of the unjust judge. And that's why some of us feel like this is a really strange parable. Why would God compare himself to an unjust judge? Like, why, why would that be the, the comparison he uses? And so to remedy this, some call it, as the ESV, the, the Bible that I'm preaching out of right now, calls it the parable of the persistent widow. I think that's better for sure. And based on verse 1 and the end of 8, it seems to be the main point. But let me offer to you what I think is a, a better title, um, that will provide an endless supply of the very fuel we need to drive persistent, confident, hopeful prayer. Okay, here's, here's my title. The parable of the most judged judge who can and will do nothing but act justly. Wordy? <laughs> yeah, but it's wonderful. In this parable, God is not compared to the unjust judge. He's contrasted to him. This is not just a how much more parable. This is a how much more is God unlike this unjust judge. If this unjust judge who doesn't care about God or care about you will sometimes do what's right out of his own selfish self-interest because he's annoyed, how much more will God? The just judge, the judge that can do nothing but be just, do what's right for his people. I um, found a blog post by Scotty Smith. He often takes passages of the Bible and he writes these beautiful prayers from them. And I found one that he based on Luke 18 here. And I just modified it a little bit to read it more as a statement and, and less as a prayer. He says it like this. He says, so what's the relationship between ongoing prayer and heart peace? I used to have a me-centered, performance-laden understanding of the parable of the persistent widow. I thought the more I prayed, the more likely I'd be to get what I want. Prayer was a means of earning, not a gift for resting. A way to grow calluses on my knees, not necessarily get a bigger heart for Jesus. How silly, how sad, how seductive. Seductive because we love control and formulas. But praise Jesus that this parable isn't about the widow who never gives up, but about the judge who always does everything right on his schedule, by his grace, for our good. Does prayer change things? Absolutely. It changes me. It changes us. First and foremost, prayer is a means of getting more of Jesus, coming more fully alive to who he is and every good thing we have in him. We pray and we pray so that what's real becomes more real, so that Jesus who has our hearts, we get to see it more, so that Jesus gets more of a heart. We put ourselves in, in authenticity before him. You know, the contrast in this parable isn't just the judge and God. There's also a contrast of the widow and then what God calls his people in this text, this, this, this beautiful word, elect. It also means Chosen. Quoting John Piper, he says this, he says, see the word elect, this is a dynamite word. 
that means when we come to God and pray to him, we're not coming like a stranger, a widow whom he doesn't know or care about, and he's contrasting there with the unjust judge. He has chosen us, elected us, set his favor upon us, adopted us into his family, made us his children. When we knock on the door and say, it's me, it's very different than when a, stranger, a strange widow knocks on an unjust judge's door and says, it's me, and he answers, who? Or maybe we could even say, who cares? God knows our voice. We're his children. We're the chosen. We're the elect. And therefore, Jesus argues from lesser to greater. If an unjust judge who has a stranger whom he doesn't care about at all knocking on his door will give in to her, how much more will God, who not only knows us, but chose us, loves us, adopts us, readily and lovingly answer our request? You know, think about how a mom can be at a play date with like 15 kids. And she hears the cry of a three-year-old from like four floors away and says, that's mine. Oh, will God not hear his people? Of course he will. Now, the word elect, depending on your background, perspective, how you came across it, you might think it's a beautiful word. You might think it's a battle word. The Bible never uses it as a debate. The idea of elect or chosen or marked out or claimed, it's, it's a word that's never debated in the Bible. It's actually one to, to give comfort and to produce worship. That's what it's meant to do here in this poem. If you are his people, if you are his people, you are, as First Peter says, you are a chosen people, a people for his own possession. God will give justice. He'll make it all right. He will avenge all the heartache and the hurt and the insults. The promise God gives in these verses is this. Things right now are not what they one day will be. When Jesus returns, when he comes back, verse 8, when the Son of Man comes back, he will bring a new heavens and earth where the injustices that the widow experienced, the injustices that you experienced, the hurts that you experienced, the, the headlines that harm and frighten will be gone. In The Lord of the Rings, uh, this epic retelling of good and evil, J.R. Tolkien, uh, he, he tells this story of a, of a powerful ring that kind of corrupts the human heart and condenses all of the evil and empowers, and it just wreaks havoc in this land called Middle-earth. And the, the story of the Lord of the Rings are uh, a number of hobbits that, that, that go on this journey, this fellowship of the ring along with men and all sorts of elves, and, 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 and they, they go on this ring, and there's, there's two hobbits that become the primary bearers of the ring, uh, Frodo and his friend Sam. And after the very final battle, after everything, after, after these these incredible battles of so much sacrifice after an epic journey of, of so much challenge, they finally take this, this ring of power and they throw it into the, the lava in this place called Mount Doom. And, and it's a symbol that, okay, evil, the evil ring has now been destroyed, but there's this really wonderful scene that happens between Sam and then a wizard named Gandalf after evil is vanquished, after the ring is destroyed, and after this perilous journey is done, Sam asks this question to Gandalf. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Picking up on that line, Michael Kruger says this. This statement is quite profound because it is different than asking whether good things are going to come true. Rather, it is asking whether sad things are going to come untrue. 
Thus, sad Sam's statement, like Christian eschatology, there's that word again, recognizes that there is currently something very wrong with the world. It is a place that is filled with sadness. Oh, it's filled with good things too, for sure. But it is filled with sadness, cursed by sin, groaning as it awaits its redemption. And in the final consummation, those sad things will be made untrue. The curse will be rolled back. And the world will be changed. The widow had at least a twofold problem. She was a widow which has its own sadness and story behind it. And she'd been wronged. But one day, every sad thing will be made untrue. See, that's the hope of every Christian. Whatever the struggle, whatever the hurt, whatever the petition, whatever you bring before God. And as this text says, it'll happen speedily. Now, that feels like a real dissonant note when it says he's going to give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night, and we have this parable of a persistent one. That feels like, where's that word coming from? The word speedily, it, it can be understood in this way, surprisingly or instantly. It's saying right now we live in this already but not yet world, this world of mixed bag of patchwork of righteousness and unrighteousness, but one day in the blink of an eye, it's going to change. When Christ returns, it's, it's not going to be an unfolding process that's going to take a lot of effort on your end. It will take no effort on your end. You will simply receive it as Christ brings a new kingdom. Lord of the Rings, again, Gandalf, at the beginning of the, the story, he's, the wizard is coming in on a horse-drawn carriage, and he's, his friend Frodo is, is standing on the side, and he makes this little statement to him. He says, Gandalf, you're late. And Gandalf says this, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. King Jesus is not late, and he will not be early, but he will arrive precisely when it is best. See, we get to hold that in the midst of the hurts and the struggles and the worries and the wondering right now. Why pray and keep praying so you don't lose heart? Um, how should we pray? I'm not going to do much on this. I'll just tell you the text gives us one way of doing that, to, to cry out day and night, just to bring your real self regularly into the presence of God, the God who loves you. Why pray so we don't lose heart? Why pray? Because it makes more real what will be most real, which helps us not lose heart. And then we come to the ver end of verse 8. Why pray? And the, this statement of when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? Why pray so when Jesus returns, we still have faith because we haven't lost heart? Michael Horton, in his wonderful article, Faith is Not Wishful Thinking, It's Defiance. I love that line. Faith is not wishful thinking, it's defiance. And in that article, he traces the story of, of Abraham, who's known as the father of God's people in the Bible. And he traces this promise that God gives to Abraham and Sarah way back, he gives it to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, 12th book or 12th chapter of the Bible, way back in the beginning. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. But there's a problem. Sarah, his wife, is barren. She cannot conceive and have children. And so we lay out this, this story. She can't have kids, but God comes to Abraham when he's 99 years old and says, this time next year, you will have a, you'll have a son. And this is how Romans 4, uh, 17 and 20 talks about this scenario. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. And the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gave life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist 
in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. The older I get, the less I like that verse. (laughs) Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. That's defiance. That's honestly looking at the factor stacked against the promise and choosing to trust God anyway. There's nothing on earth that would say, yeah, this is going to happen, but he says, I'm going to trust God anyway to do it. One of my favorite characters in one of Tolkien's buddies, uh, C.S. Lewis's incredible series, The Chronicles of Narnia, is this little mouse named Reepicheep. So the Chronicles of Narnia, this mythic retelling of the story of the Bible, again, good and evil, and this this lion named Aslan that represents Christ and the longing to go into Aslan's country. And I just love the Reepicheep. He's valiant, he's courageous, because he's full of love and devotion to Aslan, and he never loses his heart. And one of the reasons is that he is laser beam focused on going to Aslan's country. He wants the, the consummated kingdom. He wants the new creation. That's where he wants to be. Reepicheep says this. While I can, I sail east in the dawn, treader this mighty ship. And when she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle, a little tiny raft. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my forepaws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Azag's country or shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. He says, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. That's the picture of this text, this persistent widow praying, his people praying night and day, crying out, God, I don't know what the world's going to throw, but I, I'm going to go down, I'm going to sink going down with my, 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 my face facing you, my nose towards, towards the sunrise, as long as I can, until you come back. Now, you may be thinking, but I am not as faith-filled as Abraham. I don't believe like he believed. One of the more mysterious things and comforting things I would suggest to you about Abraham is you have this Romans 4 text, which holds them up as just an incredible example of faith. But if you go back and actually read the chapters on Abraham from like chapter 12 through at least 22 in the book of Genesis, you, what you find is a frequently wavering and wishy-washy Abraham. Just this, Genesis 17, 7. This is after God says, you're going to have a son. In a year, you're going to have a son. This is what happens. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. God comes to you and says, I'm going to do it. And your response is to laugh at God. This seems unwise, just at best. Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? That doesn't sound like a paragon of faith. Now, if you get to Genesis 22, where Abraham, he's willing to offer up even his son, the very son that was promised that he could never have. Now, now that's, that's some faith. Or you go to Genesis 15, and you hear this little line, he, speaking of Abraham, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed him, and it was his righteousness, not through his doing, but his trusting. 
Or you can go all the way back to Genesis 12 when God told Abraham to, to go to a different land. He says, I'm going to bless you, but you got to go to a new land. And then you have this simple act of obedience in Genesis 12, 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. But you know what you have interspliced in all of those chapters? You have Abraham wavering. He listened to the Lord. He went as he was told. A few verses later, he's fearful and he uses his wife as a escape clause out of his fear. You go forward to Genesis 16, and Sarah was tired of waiting for a son, and Abraham was tired of waiting for a son, so she said, I want you to be intimate with my servant, and then we can have kids through her. God had made the promise, but they didn't trust him. Why am I doing this long excursus on Abraham? Here's why. Because the Bible holds him up as an example of faith and It's a mixed example, which is unbelievably good news to us. Amen? Goodness. Verse 8 is not this. It's not, will Jesus find perfect, unwavering, never doubting, always swaggering faith on earth? It's, will Jesus find faith-filled-ish people who keep longing and looking for his return? Pray and keep praying so that Jesus is more real to your hearts. Now, how's this work? Years ago, I, uh, I forgot my iPad in a hotel lobby. Uh, I was going to a conference. I was, I was speaking at a, a, a workshop. I was doing some workshop or breakout session, and we get to the, the place where it was hosted, this church. It was, I don't know how far away it was. It wasn't super far away, but we got there, and about an hour before I was supposed to give my, my, my talk, I realized that I had forgotten my, my iPad. Dane, who serves so faithfully here, was with me, thankfully, and so he was like, no problem. I'll go get it. You know, all my notes are on the iPad, um, so thankfully, Dane goes back. He, he, he finds it, and he, and he brings it to me, you know, disaster averted, but since then, I'm real neurotic about losing stuff, real neurotic, like like clinically neurotic, and, and particularly in my iPad. And, and so, and especially when I'm traveling, of which I do a decent amount for our church planning network. And so when I travel, I'm leaving my house. So I might be taking like a 5 a.m. flight out of Bellingham, and I, I'm about to leave my house. It's like 3-something in the morning, and I, I, I have this slot on my backpack where I put my iPad. And so I open it up, and I put my iPad in, and I, because I know I'm neurotic, I look at the iPad. That's not enough. So I touch the iPad, and then I zip it closed. And then I go to the garage and I do the same thing. And then I get to my car and I used to put it in the trunk of my car, but I have stopped multiple times on the way to the airport to check if it's actually in the trunk of my car. So now I just put it shotgun with me. So it's my iPad's right in shotgun so I can reach over and fill the iPad in the bag. And when I'm on the airplane, I typically will touch it multiple times. Like I said, this is a bit of a neurosis. You might be like, it's more than a bit. Well, we all got our stuff and we're all works in progress. But I do it over and over and over again. I touch it, I look at it, I feel it because I need to make sure it's there. Like, it makes what's real. I know it's real. Like, and now I've been doing this. I'm trying to get healthier with this. So I'm like, Rob, you know it's in there. You've felt it 87 times. And the person sitting next to you in 17F is creeped out. So stop touching (laughs) The iPad. But it makes what's real more real to me. It makes what's real more real. I want to be clear. The iPad thing is not super healthy. But here's what is super healthy. Prayer. Prayer. Persistent prayer. Laying hold of God. Reaching out and touching him. 
getting him in front of you, knowing that he sees you, that he's there, that he's not distant. I'm going to give you a guarantee, okay? I don't do this often in sermons. I'm going to give you a bona fide guarantee. Bring your real self regularly to God for the next 50 years. Now, if it doesn't work, come back and tell me I'm wrong. I'll probably be dead. But, but feel free. 50 years, you can come and curse my grave. 50 years, bring your, your real self regularly to God and see if it doesn't help tune your heart towards hope. I don't want to be flippant. I, I know there's complicated aspects to this. I know there's all sorts of ways that you've tried, and I've tried. But we bring our real selves to the real God and see him tune our hearts. I promise it'll work. Actually, I think Jesus in this text is saying he promises that it'll work. Let me go back to a line, and I'll end with this, from Scotty Smith. This parable isn't about the widow who never gives up, but about the judge who always does everything right on his schedule, by his grace, for our good. I was thinking about, like, what's the loudest declaration of that just judge who, by grace, acts for our good? It can be no other than the giving of his very own son, Jesus. Here's what's stunning. If we're honest, we don't just live in a mixed bag world. We're mixed bag people full of justice and injustice, full of right and wrong, full of good things and full of, of sin. In this text, we see a judge who does not fear God or love others. And if we're honest, there are times we fear God and love others, and there are times we do not fear God or love others. And the greatest declaration that we get to be a part of this kingdom is not our tenacity and our faithfulness and our prayer, but the giving of Christ who came as the ultimate promise, an ultimate guarantee that will roll back the curse that for all who trust in him, see, Jesus came to do what we couldn't do and he died in our place. See, he actually took the justice of God upon himself. What we get is the grace of God. What we get is the very mercy of God. What we get is not like the widow who was wronged and she gets to have a rightful complaint. We don't have a rightful complaint against God and yet God still said, Jesus will take the justice so that you can have grace. So you let that infiltrate our imaginations and influence our prayers. This beautiful word, elect, that Christ chose it. He chose you. The great shepherd came to claim and lay hold of his sheep to give of his life that they might find new life. This parable is not about wearing God down through endless prayer. It's about endless prayer so the truth of who God is and what God has done in Christ and all God promises to do in Christ is made more real to us as we live in this mixed bag world as mixed bag people waiting for Jesus to come and make all the sad things untrue. Why pray and keep praying so the hope found in Christ becomes even more real to us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, would you come and make these truths sing to us? God, we bring a variety of things before you. Oh, the principle of just persistent prayer is a good one, but in the context here, it becomes a really great one. We readily confess there are things far beyond our abilities, but nothing is too hard for you. Grant us the ability to not lose hope now. 
to not lose hope for the spouse we've been praying for for 42 years, to not lose hope for, the, for the, the brutalities that we might see in our culture being addressed, to not lose hope for the fracture in a marriage being mended, to not lose hope for the future of our kids and, and, and what happens to them, to not lose hope in the provision of our daily bread if we've been really struggling, God, to not lose hope, Father, for the insults that we've taken that one day they will be dealt with to not lose hope, God, as we think globally about our brothers and sisters all over the planet who are mistreated for the name of Christ, to know that one day, one day, Jesus, you will come to deal with all of it, and you're going to do it speedily. Help us to pray and to keep on praying so we don't lose hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.